0: Welcome to episode 43 of FRT, the IAF podcast on the intersection of finance, regulation and technology. I'm Brad Carr, today here with my colleague Conan French and we're back home in Washington where the topic of the week has been Facebook's Libra currency proposal and the congressional hearings of both the Senate Banking Committee and the House Financial Services Committee. We have a very special guest on this topic, Professor Chris Brummer, the Institute of International Economic Law at Georgetown University, Chris was among the experts who testified at Congress, and we're very privileged to have him join us, although I would argue that the congressional hearings were merely a warm-up for the main game in town, coming to join us here on FRT. Chris, welcome, and thanks for making the time for us. Thank you so much. It's great to be here. Really excited to have you with us. Uh, I'm technically supposed to be on vacation at the moment, and I mentioned that for a reason that will become clearer later in the episode. But Chris, uh, as well as your capacity at Georgetown University, you also host the terrific FinTech Beat podcast with CQ Roll Call. Firstly, thank you for hosting me on your podcast recently, and I'm so glad both for that and for the chance to swap the microphone around today. And I'm going to get you to talk a little bit more about FinTech Beat a bit later in the, in the episode. But we'll initially cover this conversation in three parts. We're going to start with those Libra hearings from this week. We will secondly look beyond Libra, the wider context and the implications for other initiatives. And lastly, we'll change pace and lighten up and quickly touch on the outlook in the NBA, given the season-long injuries that were sustained in the finals and the off-season free agency merry-go-round. So let's start with this week's hearings. I'm going to offer our sense of some of the big themes, and then, Chris, will get you to elaborate or correct us. Conan, I thought probably some of the most striking areas of focus for the members of Congress seemed to be about the inherent distrust of really all things Facebook, with a big focus on some of the past misdeeds in the way that data had been protected, for instance, and also concerns over the competition elements and Facebook's market power, both in the Libra Association and also in the way that the wallets would work. That's right. Those were definitely
1: the overarching themes uh, through both hearings. Some other issues that came in were concerns about U.S. leadership in this place. Our role as the center of innovation and how we square that with the legal and regulatory framework for crypto and updating the environment for the industry to be able to innovate. Um, There were also some concerns about blurred lines. How do you classify this? How should we consider Facebook, Libra, Calibra, the entities in, in the network? Um, So those were definitely the the top line takeaways. I think the distrust of Facebook, again, Representative French Hill, for instance, said if this proposal had come from GE or even JPMorgan Chase, would we be looking at the same way? It didn't think so. And the fact that Facebook, with its data breaches and misuse of data and the fact that they're just announced the $5 billion settlement with the U.S. government over the Cambridge Analytica breach of data, means that every single element of this proposal was viewed through a really jaundiced lens Um, because of who had convened it and who had proposed it. So I think that that was the overwhelming theme across both hearings. But digging below that, there were some of the other things that you had mentioned that were consistent, um, both across the hearings here and also some of the global voices that we've been hearing over the past couple of weeks, certainly at the G7 meeting as well. So the Libra Association, its governance, competitiveness within the wallets, how the reserves of this uh, entity are overseen and managed, and who holds custody, and all of the you know follow-on impacts that you trigger when you talk about a global currency to enable billions of the uh, people <laughs> of the earth to engage in seamless commerce on the internet. So, of course, the diversity and the spectrum of issues that this brings forward is really remarkable. And so, we've tried to focus in on some of the the highlights, but again, almost any issue or aspect that you could think of in financial services trigger some implication from this proposal
0: from Facebook. That's kind of how it looked as an outside observer, Chris. But you know, from your perspective, what really stood out for you?
2: Well, it was certainly a very interesting experience being there because you're you're not only listening to David Marcus's comments who is the co-creator of the Libra wallet, but you're also trying to gauge the responses and the to anticipate the kinds of questions that you'll be receiving from the different members of Congress and and that's changed I think over time as not only Congress, but also, as you've seen, the the Treasury Department and and also the President of the United States weigh in on this and sort of elevating this question to one of not only sort of financial regulatory relevance, but also almost a kind of patriotic sort of question. Uh, I, I think that uh, for sure, the fact that Facebook was the you know is the protagonist or at least the sponsor, and at least initially is going to be the lead voice on the project informs how one looks at the project and it had real political consequences. I do think that at the same time, when you're talking about money, you know, money is a question of trust, right? And so in my own personal view, it's not just a political question of should we trust you? I mean, what, what are you going to do with this discretion? And what are you going to do with, uh, you know, whatever financial powers that 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 you enjoy? But there's also kind of a business question that I think many of your listeners can well appreciate that if you're a financial institution, you have to make sure that number one, do your customers trust you? Do they trust you with your information? Do they trust you with their money, right? And, and then when you do something like, you know, starting up a global financial system, then there's another degree of trust, yes. which is, you know, the, the trust in the monetary system and how it operates. So I think that that question of trust, while while certainly a political one, it's sort of operating on different levels. And you saw it pop up from time to time in, in the different questions uh, at the hearing.
0: The word trust gets bandied around in a lot of different ways in the financial sector. And this was probably one of the most stark uh, exhibitions of the use of that word. <laughs> um, in your own testimony, 99 problems, there are 99 problems and this white paper is just one. And I am disappointed
2: for any of those who did not hear the clear reference to Jay-Z. Uh, no, I, I was driving around thinking about my, my testimony for the week and, you know, uh, just the sheer array of questions that it forces one to think about and obviously the, the white paper didn't have all the answers that you would want to most of them, but I just started to kind of count them off and tried to think through, well, how many of these could I cover either in my oral or even written testimony? And I recognize that I, I wouldn't have enough time to even go through in my written testimony, just just the layers of different kinds of questions, much less answers for those questions. And then, you know, I'm, I'm driving around and I'm hearing <laughs> 99 problems. So I said, ah, I think... I think I have a title.
0: Yes, well, we were trying to pick out what were the leading items out of your testimony we could quiz you about today, and, and as you say, there were just so many of them, so many different issues. Yeah, one that I might raise with you is the point about systemic risk. It came up in some of the, the questions from Congressman whether FSOC needs to designate Libra as a SIFI, as well around the overall scale of the 2.7 billion customers. But what was the you know, a, I guess, do you want to elaborate further on the systemic risk concern as you see it?
2: Yes. And, and I think I should sort of contextualize for a moment what I was trying to, to sort of lay out. Um, I, I focused on the white paper as a kind of disclosure document. In other words, they're not just brainstorming as a kind of intellectual exercise here. There are lots of ways to do that. You can call people, you can send them emails. There are carrier pigeons. There are lots of ways to do this. Instead, they decided to have a kind of global marketing campaign and to put it into a white paper. And I was just looking at it because it raises regulatory questions about, is it a security? And you heard a lot about that. But just sort of looking at, well, what kinds of things would one normally just want to know before putting or getting your hands on a a Libra currency? And of those things was this question of systemic risk. And the systemic risk issue is, can you lose your money if you decided to hold the currency? And, And one of those questions was, well, what happens when you decide to have an instrument that's back on a basket of currencies and the fact that whenever you do this, regardless as to what those specific assets are, it does introduce this notion of foreign currency risk. And we can get into that. But the other kind of systemic question, and it gets again back to, to the trust issue, is well, uh, people may want to liquidate their currency because an asset in that basket may be problematic. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they may also want to liquidate their holdings, their, their Libra holdings, if they wake up one day and they see that there's been a hack uh, on the Calibra wallet or yes, some kind yeah. of critical source of infrastructure. That there, there are other kinds of things that can induce a run if they learn that their data has been shared, say, with Facebook, the parent company. There are different reasons why large-scale redemption requests could be triggered. And the interesting thing in this particular scenario is that it, it doesn't necessarily have to do with the actual reserve portfolio itself. And there are just a, a cascade of different kinds of problems or, or questions that arise. And that could ultimately impair the value of the Libra as a digital asset. There's also the flip side, I think, of
1: that issue of the Libra and a really you know smooth, fast Libra wallet experience enabling the Libra and other particularly smaller, weaker currencies um, to see runs on Absolutely. their currency. So you've got those systemic risk issues on both sides. And again, it's um, immediately on the radar screen, as Governor Mark Carney said, because when you have 2.7 billion installed users around the world, and Facebook has the ability to roll out the wallet simultaneously, you have to instantly imagine sort of the full-blown systemic risk scenarios from day one.
2: That's exactly right. And and also, when you when you take into account who those other members of the Libra Association are, I mean, they are, are people that if they decide to truly buy in, <laughs> literally, uh, to the system, they could help scale up. the the Libra quite significantly and quite quickly, you know, if if Lyft or Uber, or, you know, decided to either offer real discounts for people who decided to use Libra and to to, to transact with it. And you can imagine that the Libra economy could become quite significant quite quickly under the right circumstances.
1: I think the world has also watched, you know, Chinese digital finance and how rapidly that scaled. Just said this could go very, very quickly and we need to learn from that experience.
0: The point you made about the FX risk and, and also the question of, is it a security? And I thought this was a, a more prominent theme for the House hearing than it was for the Senate. But in, interestingly, I thought the point was made around, you know, David Marcus certainly articulated, you wouldn't buy into this to make money or as an investment, you know, given the intended stability. But it was well articulated, I'm not sure who buy, to be honest, that you can still be a security if you are more uh, have a, a hedging nature, a hedging character. And I could see it more being used as an investment in that sense, that if you're concerned about your domestic currency, Libra perhaps offers you the basis to switch into something which is against a basket of currencies and dephrase the risk that you otherwise think you're sitting on with your own domestic fiat.
2: Yeah, you know, that is a really interesting way to look at it. I mean, part of the analysis, and I think people fail to sometimes appreciate, is there are different ways you can become subject to U.S. securities laws. Now, the normal gateway in this kind of situation is to go through the old SEC case of this Howie case and involves some orange groves, and I won't get into all the details uh, the, the question is ultimately, is there an investment contract? And what you see is that all of the elements of this particular judicial Supreme Court test have been fulfilled, except for the question as to whether or not there's an expectation of profit. In other words, if you, if you get your hands on, the, on, mm. on Libra, are you expecting to make money? And that question, I've been generally sort of hesitant to grasp and to say, well, there's an expectation of profit. But I do think that you could certainly make a real argument that, hey, look, people look you know, to, to hedge their activities in ways that certainly look profit-like. And additionally, there are individuals involved in the overarching sort of plan here who are looking to profit. And those are the investors in this allied product called the Libra investment token. So there's not just people who want to use the token for consumption purposes and uh, work to purchase things, but also people who are investing in and expecting to get dividends back. And there is arguably some intermingling sort of of those kinds of actors and certainly of the profit motive. But the FX question and the hedging question is a really interesting one.
0: So we went into these hearings, I think, with far more questions than answers. And, and that was certainly where the white paper a month ago had positioned us. I wouldn't say that we got a lot of answers this week, but it certainly provided some more areas of detail and probably sparks that discussion further. Let's put that to one side and broaden out beyond just Libra itself and perhaps look at Libra in a wider context. I'm interested in your thoughts, Chris, as to whether this is a catalyst for the evolution of crypto and digital assets more broadly. Does this change the climate, perhaps, for how regulators may look at other initiatives? Might regulators or central banks that are concerned by Libra, but simultaneously not wanting to paint themselves into the corner of being perceived as anti-innovation, might this change the landscape or the posture in the way that, that some of those other proposals might be looked at?
2: I think there are two ways to look at that. Number one is, is it changing the crypto community in terms of what they're thinking about doing in terms of their new developments in the pipeline? Everything from enterprise solutions and engagement of distributed ledger technologies to sort of the early stage folks who are just trying to kickstart their own new cryptocurrencies or payment solutions. There is the the regulatory question, that, how they want to rethink things. I think that to the former, you saw Quite a few discussions in a really coordinated voice, let's say, uh, from folks in the crypto community trying to distinguish, say, the Libra digital asset to cryptocurrency and and, and sort of saying this is not a real cryptocurrency. This is this is not us. And I think that they're trying to do it for uh, legal purposes, you know, so that lawmakers don't throw them all in, in one basket, to mm-hmm. use the pun. <laughs> and, and, and also as, as a service for education, so that people can know that blockchains are, are very, very different, as are the payment solutions and the risks and rewards that they bring to the table. From a regulatory standpoint, I think that this is a wake up call because Facebook won't be the only company. Looking to do this, and it won't be the only uh, big company looking to do this. And you're going to see other companies who are smaller, who by dint of their relationships or the technology that they're developing, may be in a position to scale up very quickly as well. And so it's going to force regulators not to necessarily play the ostrich with these issues. And I think sometimes there's a tendency, a natural tendency to do so with things that are complex and hard and no one really understands in the regulatory community. And then the central banks themselves are going to be forced to ask themselves, you know, is our legacy payments infrastructure robust? Is it modern? Is it useful? And how effective is it in a world of global interactions and payments?
1: And that's certainly a conversation that's happening around the world. And you saw it in both hearings where, you know, one member posited the only reason why you're here is because the Federal Reserve hasn't rolled out a real-time RTGS system to consumers here in the U.S., You also saw, I think, Chairman Crapo saying the United States should lead in establishing these rules of the road and oversight of similar initiatives around the world. And there was a lot of question, why are you going to Switzerland? Is it because we don't have the right legal and regulatory frameworks to deal with crypto initiatives here in the U.S.? So it definitely seems to have, I think, forced rethinking in some communities that say, oh, gee, Switzerland and Singapore and increasingly others have these frameworks in place. Is this now going to be a competitive advantage that we need to catch up? There's also you know, the question of other market players. You know, the IF, we've been convening roundtable meetings with Bank for International Settlements and other players for almost four years now to say this technology is coming to the mainstream and we need to think about um, what that means for the global industry. So it does seem to be another starting gun. You know, the peak Bitcoin two years ago was one, but as the air was let out of that speculative bubble, you know, I think people relaxed a little bit. And now you see people ranging from the head of research at the People's Bank of China saying, we were ahead on this. We're now behind. We're going to catch up again. So as you said, and even David Marcus said in the hearing, you know, if it's not Facebook, it will be somebody. And as upset as you are with us bringing this forward, you may be even more unhappy with whoever fills this void of, again, convenient, low cost, on demand instant payments across the
2: internet. And there's just so much going on in the world in general, and, and people are trying to figure out both from um, national competitiveness to geostrategic issues. You probably saw the Bank of England, and they are really taking interesting positions with regards to fintechs generally in their payment system on their balance sheet. And that perspective, you can even see in their initial responses to Facebook's Libra currency. Now, I think that globally, One of the challenges that Facebook had was, which you're seeing, is that there needs to be more work in terms of their communications, not just with U.S. regulators, but if you want to do something globally, then you should probably talk to to some of the uh, folks who are overseeing the markets in which you're trying to introduce that product. But you are definitely seeing a push, even by some central banks, to rethink what they're doing.
1: And I think that's why we saw David Marcus a couple of times reference that he was working with Benoit Correa and others in the G7 working group. There are reports that they've been talking to all of the central banks in the G7 and, and a broader group. So I think they are trying to reach out and it will be interesting to see how these groups react. Does the Libra white paper proposal really drive kind of a global reworking of the global framework and infrastructure? Or does it stay really just focused on this single proposal and how quickly do these things go?
2: Yeah, and it could even kickstart even more discussions in areas that people are not expecting. I mean, certainly we have the consensus that was brought in June in terms of some of the anti-money laundering issues. But the very fact that this has almost reignited certain kinds of questions to say, well, well, is is, is that enough? You know, what do we do with peer-to-peer infrastructures? because all this attention is now being focused on what happens in between the on and the off ramps, right? And maybe that sparks yet another round of conversations. I mean, it's, it's very hard to predict, except we can predict that there will be something. I mentioned central banks a little there. And, and you mentioned the Bank of England. And
0: I'll, I'll give a quick shout out to Hugh Van Steen the Bank of England's uh, future of finance report that was published a couple of weeks ago. It's a really great report that I really do recommend to all listeners to get onto and read. And we're hoping to get Hugh on here as one of our guests later this year. But in terms of central bank responses in another direction, I have a hypothesis and I'd welcome your reaction, Chris, that you know, some of the central banks have been looking with exploring digital currencies, central bank digital currencies for some time. Perhaps not so much the Rix Bank model that Stefan Ingers described on episode forty two of FRT with us. But I think in other jurisdictions, some central banks are thinking well, we haven't necessarily seen the need to issue a CBDC. But we've wanted to be able to have something we could push out as a defensive mechanism to take the point that Conan picked up on, that if we're concerned that somebody else is going to release a CBDC into our jurisdiction that's not fixed against our domestic fiat, how do we flood the market or crowd that space out before somebody else does? And I wonder whether this Libra initiative has perhaps put a bit further impetus behind that sort of thinking from central banks. Noting that at the BIS, you know, Carstens had previously been pretty cold on CBDCs, but made a speech only two weeks ago that was suddenly far more constructive on the subject.
2: Yeah, I don't know... in part because I think it's going to be a jurisdiction by jurisdiction approach and if you're already operating a global currency and you think that the market power of your currency in that global currency system is powerful enough because of the network effects that you can sort of withstand even say more competitive alternatives, then you know you may be a little bit more resistant to to change if I again this is just a kind of spontaneous uh, Uh, response. But I think that you could see some jurisdictions who have currencies that don't enjoy those same kind of network effects really thinking about how to make sure that their payment system and that their currencies remain as competitive as possible, because they're the kinds of jurisdictions where private actors really could. Those are the kinds of folks where you have to wonder how competitive will those be if the market comes out with certain kinds of private solutions. Uh, And I think, again, Bank of England, and I was just there, Two or three weeks ago, talking about many of these same issues, they're just facing a number of interesting geoeconomic questions, you know, with Brexit, with maintaining the competitiveness of their own domestic financial system, re engaging and finding ways of, in some instances, engaging disparate parts of the world with which they believe they have a need to deepen their relationships. And I think that some of those initiatives should be read appropriately through that strategic guys, and through that mission that i think that the bank of england is embracing as these central banks look at the future of money that's clearly one
1: aspect you touched on a few others before of in the us you know we're looking at how we test is it an etf is it a security is it a token what is this how do we classify it and this will interestingly i think drive that conversation around the world now some jurisdictions have gotten a little ahead of the curve in, in thinking through these issues and and laying them out but do you see you know some key focal points or issues going forward is, as again, these proposals from technology platforms tend to blur lines because they can perform a function that traditionally, you know, in a physical world used to be associated with one type of business activity, and now could just be sort of embedded in the background of a very different business model.
2: So I think that this is kind of thrown in this big wrench to things, you know, I, I, you guys had a very apt description of how, you know, so you had all this cryptocurrency and, you know, everything kind of goes up in value. And then you go into crypto winter and there's this sort of calm period and regulators are thinking, oh, OK, we may have a little bit of time here, you know, think things through. They got the ideas. And then all of a sudden, you know, uh, Facebook. Cl- climate change. <laughs> <laughs> climate change. Facebook moves winter, fast. Winter Qu- exactly. Yeah. Right. And, and and so there's this question, you know, uh, and now all kinds of other issues are are coming to the fore where, you know, if you just sort of think about what kinds of regulatory progress was made during crypto winter. Okay. So in the European union, you know, you had this report The commission is asking the EBA and ESMA to come out with some kind of more coordinated approach to, to come up with their own European wide uh, approach to, to sort of transferable securities, basically trying to come up with an approach to figure out, well, what should fall within the regulatory perimeter for securities regulation in the way that the same way the United States is trying to think through, okay, how does how we apply to, to you know crypto assets? The EU is trying to figure out, well, how exactly does MiFID apply to crypto assets? And then um, you know they they kind of come out with some broader guidelines, a sort of an enhanced focus on AML, right? The FATF sort of backs them up along with the regulatory stream coming out of Vincent and the Treasury Department, and there's this sense of okay, we're, we're starting to get our arms around that issue. And then, boom, Facebook sort of blows it all out the water where now you're asking yourself, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Okay, if we have something that's structured in a way that looks a lot like an ETF, but may have the same risk of a money market mutual fund. But that really wasn't the greatest thing in the world, say, with 2008. And by the way, we're still not entirely certain whether or not or how we should be applying Howey or even the Reeves test. And other jurisdictions have those same problems. And they don't even have the legacy conversation that the United States has had. Not to mention that the customer experience
1: might feel a lot like banking, where you're going to a group, you're giving them your money, you're leaving it there, you're doing some things with it, and Absolutely. eventually you want to take it back. And so again, that question of how do we think of banking in the future is like, what is a deposit? I mean, and driving these, you know, it would be a very, very thorny, sticky, multi-dimensional problem set if it was just launched in the U.S. Um, But the fact that they've decided, no, you know, let's just go global global." from day one (laughs) uh, means that driving these conversations in parallel in you know dozens of countries around the world has just
0: multiplied the complexity of the problem set. Okay, Chris, let's turn now to basketball, which I know you're a big fan of. You referred to the Warriors a few times in different speeches. I do. I do. I mentioned earlier that I'm technically on vacation at the moment. Um, My wife is actually at the Netball World Cup in Liverpool, cheering on Australia against the likes of New Zealand and England. Netball being a sport in the British Commonwealth that's kind of like actually the original basketball from the James Naismith days. You can shoot, but there's no backboard and you can't run with the ball. But but one consequence of all of that is that I've got my sons with me here today. And Chris, I was very tempted earlier to ask you, how would you explain Libra to a seven-year-old with an actual seven-year-old here to critique you? But instead, I'm going to rely on the fact that the two of you are big Warriors fans and big Steph Curry fans. And Lockie's got a question that he'd like to ask you about the Warriors.
2: How will the Golden State Warriors cover for Clay Thompson, while he's out injured? Now, now that is a hard question. I mean that that is really tough. I mean, look, the only thing I can say that's slightly optimistic, you know, for the Warriors now is if Katie is gone, then theoretically they they still have a max contract out, right? Yep. So, so they yep. should be able to go and find someone. But now, this late in free agency, I mean, it's it's going to be tough. I mean, who who are you going to get? I mean. Okay, Chris Paul is out there, but you would never want to take him on. I mean, his contract is way too expensive, and you already have Steph Curry. So, I mean, that's not really going to get you anywhere. Uh, I think it's going to be a really hard slog, and I think the best chance is that they'll be able to get Clay back at least by by February. And then he can get in shape, get himself perhaps ready for the playoffs, but... I mean, I think it's going to be tough. I think it's going to be tough.
0: It's going to be a very even Western Conference now, isn't it? Obviously, the Clippers seem to be the dominant team with the big recruits out of free agency, but the Lakers have added Anthony Davis and DeMarcus Cousins. Houston and Denver would presumably be strong
2: sides again. You know, Houston, that's going to be interesting. You know, as two folks, dynamic, but, you know, they, they need the ball a lot. Los Angeles is becoming its own epicenter of the league. The NBA is looking more like a blockchain. You know, it's, it's decentralized. <laughs> it's diffuse power and nodes running through uh, the league. You've given us a great segue back on topic there.
0: So <laughs> so lastly, Chris, I wanted to give you the chance to touch on the all FinTech Beat podcast, Chris's World. It's all about the Benjamins. Uh <laughs> I really enjoyed the piece we did together with Tim Swanson and Amy Kim a few weeks ago. And I won't just be vain and talk about my episode. It was a great piece also that you did last week on the different meanings of decentralization. Can you tell our listeners a little bit more about FinTech Beat?
2: Yeah, well, FinTech Beat is what we we're hoping to do over at uh, CQ Roll Call as an attempt to educate people about financial technology and regulation and policy. and to of course do it in a fun way, you will see more than just a couple of references to 1990s hip-hop and uh, we think that these kinds of things and popular culture more generally kind of flows throughout our podcasts because uh, we want to uh, forgot exactly what Rousseau said, but to entertain and instruct at the same time. And uh, as someone who's been teaching now for over a decade, I've learned that that's by far the best way to make your point clear.
0: Well, Chris, thanks very much for joining us. I realise what a crazy couple of weeks you've had, no doubt, leading into the testimony that you gave at the House Financial Services Committee, and we appreciate you making the time for us. Chris, you made a number of great points. Um, If I pick out just a couple of those, as you noted, it's a wake-up call, not only for regulators, but also for others in the financial services industry and in the emerging crypto industry. I like the way that you described that wake-up call on the need to not be an ostrich, and I'll put that alongside the other wildlife analogy of the week from Bill Hughesinger in the House, who described Libra as a platypus, neither a fish nor a fowl. As you note, we'll probably see a lot more others trying to do this or other things similar to this. Looking ahead on FRT in the coming weeks, Kona and I will continue looking at Libra, including specifically at the currency implications and also at the digital identity element, which was one piece that conspicuously did not get a lot of coverage in the hearings this week. Also, our colleagues Junishi Fujimura and Jonathan Fortune will bring our first Japanese language episode. Please tune in again for those via the IAF website on SoundCloud and now on Apple Podcasts. I'm Brad Carr, and thanks for joining us on FRT.